This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. From ABC News, this is Perspective. I'm Derek Dennis. Coming up, student debt relief straight from the federal government and into the hands of borrowers, plus a gigantic tuition gift for an entire school of medical students. I think I'm saving now like 180000 and then with interest, uh, probably more to half a million. Just for my family as a whole, it'll have such a big impact, um, and it takes a lot of the pressure off. Higher education more accessible than ever for thousands of Americans. Passing the two-year mark for the war in Ukraine, the casualties, the destruction, and the challenges ahead for the people caught in the middle. The less firepower you have, the more casualties you have, the more lives are lost. It's directly related. What doctors see every day as the war drags on. And celebrating black history, remembering the life and success of a black woman entrepreneur from the 1800s who was years ahead of her time. Madam Walker's wonderful hair grower, it was 50 cents. How she built an empire and a state-of-the-art mansion in New York out of a homemade remedy. All ahead on Perspective. Cheers among students and parents of students across the country after President Biden announced the cancellation of $1.2 billion in student loan debt for some 153,000 Americans. The president calling it a win for borrowers and their families. Folks, I'm happy to have been able to forgive these loans because when we realize and relieve Americans of their student debt, they're free to chase their dreams. And the benefit to the economy? They buy homes. They start businesses, they contribute, they engage in the community in ways they weren't able to before. It actually grows the economy. It grows the economy. The debt relief program called SAVE is for enrollees who took out a small initial loan and have been paying it down for a decade or longer. Borrowers like Jessica St. Paul in Los Angeles, who had her student loan debt entirely forgiven under the plan. I no longer have to be forced to choose to work or to settle to simply pay off student loan debt. I'm able to continue my passion for public service and keep serving as an adjunct faculty with the community college district and as a physician assistant at school-based health centers. Secretary of Education Miguel Cardona talking to ABC's Eva Pilgrim and DeMarco Morgan to explain more of how the program works. Who qualifies for this? Folks who took out a loan of $12,000 or less and have been paying it for uh, 10 years. Now, most of these folks, 75% of them, are people that qualify for Pell Grants. So these are people that are lower income um, and you know are trying to make ends meet. So we're really happy that we can target those folks as well. Mr. Secretary, this weekend on GMA, you said that there will be more relief in sight in the near future. Tell us about it. Yeah. Absolutely. Look, I, I want to be very clear. What we're announcing last week and what we're fighting for is making higher education more affordable and more accessible. That's the bottom line. When the president hired me, he made it very clear to me, 
we have to fix a broken system. We've provided over $138 billion in debt relief from day one. That's more than any other administration combined. And we're going to continue to announce public service loan forgiveness. We're going to continue to announce the adjustments for the income-driven repayment plan. We'll also be announcing additional uh, loan forgiveness for those who have been paying over 10 years. What's your response to those critics who argue that taxpayers shouldn't be paying other people's debt? They say, I paid my own college yeah. and it took a long time, or maybe they didn't go to college. Uh, what do you say to them? No, I respect you know everyone's uh, opinion and I respect different perspectives, but let me be very honest. Over one million people are going into default every year. Taxpayers are paying for that too when people can't afford to pay their, their mortgage and they go into bankruptcy or they can't pay, pay their loans. We're, what we're doing is investing. Education is an investment in our country's future. We are making higher education more affordable, more accessible. Um, and we recognize that it costs more not to address this broken system. If we want to compete internationally, if we want to lead uh, the way we should be leading in the United States, we have to invest in education. And, and another thing, Eva, we, the work that we're doing is aimed at not being in the same position we're in in five years. We're increasing college accountability. We're communicating a better return on investment in higher education. We're creating pathways to careers that don't require a four-year degree. So we're doing a holistic overhaul of a higher education system so it's more affordable, more accessible, um, and our students deserve that. Education Secretary Miguel Cardona speaking to ABC's Eva Pilgrim and DeMarco Morgan. So far, nearly 3.9 million borrowers have had their student loan debt forgiven or payments reduced under the Biden administration's SAVE plan. It's designed as a workaround after the Supreme Court struck down President Biden's emergency order last year to forgive up to $20,000 in student loans across the board. The high court ruled that plan wasn't legal. Another way to lessen the load for student borrowers, major gifts and endowments that make loans unnecessary. In New York City, a historic gift to Albert Einstein College of Medicine. One billion dollars from a longtime professor to make the school permanently tuition free. Starting in August this year, the Albert Einstein College of Medicine will be tuition free. <laughs> Ruth Gottesman's $1 billion gift. The students and faculty jumping out of their seats with tears in their eyes and hands in the air cheering. My dad, he currently like works as an Uber driver, so he doesn't make a lot of money. So this, this has been like a huge impact on my family. Dr. Gottesman, who is 93 and currently serving as chair of the school's board of trustees, has been affiliated with the institution for over five decades. When I went to college, what I wanted to do was to work with underserved people. Studying learning disabilities, helping countless children with screening evaluations she developed, and running adult literacy programs. She's the widow of New York financier David Gottesman, who made part of his fortune as an early investor in Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway. Part of that fortune, now financing the dreams of students by removing the financial restrictions for those without the economic means to afford medical school. I think just for my family as a whole, it'll have such a big impact, um, and it takes a lot of the pressure off. ABC's Janae Norman reporting. Dr. Gottesman's billion-dollar gift to Einstein is one of the largest charitable donations to an educational institution in the U.S., and likely the largest to a medical school ever. And for one future doctor, in the audience the day of the announcement, 
the gift of free tuition was like a clearing of the road ahead. Today really felt like the beginning of the rest of my life. The future's bright. Anybody being able to pursue the field and pursue their dreams without having to worry about uh, the debt that comes with it. Coming up, Ukraine on the brink and the humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza seen firsthand by the doctors volunteering their time and their talents to help. On Perspective, after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to Perspective from ABC News. I'm Derek Dennis. It's been more than two years since Russia's war in Ukraine began, and the fight has been long, grueling, and destructive. Russia is on a tear, taking advantage of Ukrainian forces and their dwindling supplies of military equipment. ABC News Chief Global Affairs Correspondent Martha Raditz has traveled all over Ukraine. She takes us back to the night the war started and has a first-hand look on what's happened since then. It began before dawn. A powerful volley of Russian missiles striking targets across Ukraine. But predictions that Russia would quickly control Ukraine were simply wrong. Instead, It has been a slow, deadly grind on battlefields, in cities and towns. A massive loss of life and property that has affected every community. Fathers, brothers, sons now gone. Their loved ones, even while air raid sirens wail, left only with gardens to tend in their honor. Mothers like Natalia, whose 38-year-old son, Adam, died just over a month ago. What would your message be to Russia? If all of the world would unite together against Russia, this war would stop, she tells me. But Russian forces are far from halting their aggression. In southeastern Ukraine this week, Ukrainian soldiers forced to withdraw from the key town of Avdivka a significant gain for Russia and a loss that one Ukrainian commander blames on lack of manpower and dwindling reserves of ammunition. Soldiers calling the Battle of Avdivka a slaughter, the loss of life immense, the number of wounded, overwhelming hospitals. The casualties are arriving constantly and right now they are taking patients out to transfer them to other hospitals. Meknikov Hospital in Dnipro where only the most severely wounded of those fighters gets treated. 
Dr. Sergei Ruzenko heads the hospital and has been there since the invasion began. These soldiers are from Avdika. Yes, uh, the last soldiers uh, from Avdika, from Avdika, very, very serious wounded. More than, more than yes. other places. Yes. In the last two years, doctors here have treated more than 25,000 wounded soldiers, transfused 14 tons of blood, amputated more than 3,500 limbs, and performed more than 1,300 brain surgeries. American neurosurgeon Dr. Rocco Armanda is here volunteering in Ukraine for the second time since the war began. He now practices in Washington, D.C., but began his career as an army surgeon. You had so many injuries during Iraq and Afghanistan and treated soldiers from those wars. How does this compare? That was one-tenth of the number of patients that I've seen here. What we had over 20 years of war is basically what they've had in two years, very simply put. Dr. Amanda performed brain surgery this day five times. We watched him in the operating room remove shrapnel from the brain of a young, severely injured Ukrainian soldier hit by artillery. No matter what, this is a long, long recovery. Oh yeah, th this is definitely a, a long recovery uh, in terms of his traumatic brain injury, but uh, it's, it's frontal lobe, so his chances for recovery are actually much, much better. Dr. Amanda says lack of U.S. aid as the war drags on is clearly having an impact. You know that the aid has been held up. Do you think that has made a difference? The less firepower you have, the more casualties you have, the more lives are lost. It's directly related. He says he was inspired to volunteer here again because of the oath he took in the U.S. Army. Tell me why you are so committed. I'm committed because at West Point, when I was a cadet and when I became commissioned as an officer, we swore an oath to the Constitution to defend the United States against enemies, foreign and domestic. This is a foreign enemy. Russia is an enemy against the United States, against democracy, against human rights, against all of civilization. And if there's ever a place, a time where America needs to lead, this is the place. In the hospital hallway, we met the family and mother of a young soldier, Roman, in the ICU after being shot in the abdomen. You never know how hard it is until your own son is hurt, she told me, calling this war a meat grinder. But despite the loss, the pain, and no end in sight, soldiers keep fighting, the majority volunteers. We are with the 3rd Assault Brigade in Ukraine. We can't say exactly where we are, but this is one of the fiercest brigades in all of Ukraine. This soldier, who goes by call sign Center, has been in the Ukrainian Army since 2017. At this training facility, he told me the fight is getting more difficult. How important is USAID. We are defending with old rusty Soviet weapons, he tells me. If we had more Western weapons, Western airplanes and artillery, we would have been at least three times more effective. Still, he says, he'll keep up the fight. But for many other soldiers and many of the people of Ukraine who have lost so much, there is weariness here that has settled in on this anniversary and a profound sense of uncertainty. 
ABC News Chief Global Affairs Correspondent Martha Raditz in Ukraine. Desperation in Gaza as people try to get food, water, and other necessities to live. More than 100 people have died this week in northern Gaza while trying to get to aid trucks, according to the Hamas-run Ministry of Health. The ministry also says people were injured by gunfire, military tanks, and the sheer crush of desperate people clamoring for aid. Israel saying that its forces acted in self-defense and fired when they say the crowd was becoming, quote, threatening. But volunteer medical professionals say these scenes aren't surprising and that the magnitude of the humanitarian crisis is hard to comprehend. Dr. David Hassan is a neurosurgery professor at Duke University. He shares what he experienced with ABC Stephanie Ramos. Doctor, thank you so much for, for joining us. Uh, first off, what was it like working on the front lines when you were there? First of all, um, the conditions in Gaza at this point are very, very dire um, in multiple levels, including um, famine. Uh, the World uh, Food Bank uh, announced that um, level five, which is the highest level of famine are affecting about 400,000 people. When I um, arrived at Raplat, there was probably miles and miles of trucks on the four sides of the highways that are waiting to cross Raplat. And there, um, the problem, the bottleneck, uh, the crossing, the uh, agencies that kind of process that. Before the war, there were about 500 trucks crossing every day. At this point, we are lucky to have 200 trucks uh, crossing. And because of the arrangement, military arrangement, Northern Gaza would have about 400,000 people are trapped. They're not getting anything at all. No water, no food, no medical supplies. Uh, people are eating grass, sometimes drinking from toilet. Uh, uh, people are eating dead animals because of the famine, the severe conditions. This is just part of, uh, of the problem. And then on the side of the healthcare, there are no supplies at all, at minimal at best. Uh, we were doing some surgeries without anesthetics, uh, amputating legs without any pain medications or anesthetics. C-sections are done without any anesthetics, even painkillers, antibiotics, lack of antibiotics. We do a good surgery, but there's nothing to cover after. And these surgical wounds are infected and lead to death. We have maggots growing out of the wounds. The safety is lacking. Uh, we have several physicians who were killed where we're there, not from our group, but from uh, people working within the hospitals. Uh, there's no safety for the medics to transfer patients. So the conditions are very, very uh, dire. What motivated you to go there and help? And how did you handle that situation, seeing these just awful scenes? I, I felt I was flustered and nothing has been done, especially these people are innocent, Stephanie. They have nothing to do with Hamas. They're these innocent children, nothing, and being trapped. And, and, and both sides are hurt. I mean, they're uh, uh, Israeli uh, innocent children, women, and elderly will kill. There's, there's no justification for that. So. The fact that I'm a human being and a physician, I felt I'm, uh, I'm compelled to go there. It was horrible, like, you know, during the night, we're here bombing all the time. Uh, it was very, very close. One of the hospitals I worked with, uh, worked in is the NASA, which, as you know, already closed and sieged. Uh, so it was, uh, uh, there's uh, a fear um, being hurt or uh, bombs accidentally falling within the premise of the hospital. 
these hospitals became a refugee um, town. And this hospital has 50,000 people that are just crammed in it because they're like they think it's their home and safe and they live in it and they don't leave and they eat and cook, uh, even in the bathrooms because of that. They lack of food, the lack of water. Dr. David Hassan speaking to ABC Stephanie Ramos. Coming up, a surge of measles cases in Florida has some blaming the very guidance recommended by one state health official. On Perspective, after this. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. From ABC News, this is Perspective. I'm Derek Dennis. Coming up, who's cashing in on Pokemon 25 years later? But first, robots taking our jobs. It's a dilemma ABC News has been delving into as the artificial intelligence movement grows. ABC's Rebecca Jarvis talks to some who've been affected by AI to find out what could be next for all of us. When Cassandra Mason discovered the reason she lost her freelance copywriter job of three years, it wasn't what she expected. They, in fact, were just replacing all the writers with ChatGPT because the cost was so much less. ChatGPT, the artificial intelligence language model from OpenAI that can do everything from write a Shakespearean sonnet to pass the bar exam, has provoked fascination and fears, making AI a worldwide conversation. And the AI arms race is only getting fiercer. An estimated two-thirds of current jobs are exposed to some degree of AI automation. Kan Jun Q is the CEO of Imbue, a company building new user-friendly AI systems to help workers across industries accomplish real-world goals faster. I think of AI as uplifting our jobs and our work. It's taking away a lot of the very detailed kind of grunt work and freeing us up so that now we can get that grunt work done really quickly and we can focus at a more strategic level. A working paper from Harvard Business School found generative AI can improve a worker's performance by as much as 40% compared with workers who don't use it. While LinkedIn data shows AI shifting core job skills up to 65% by 2030, the most in-demand skill of 2024 is communication. AI will help us be more efficient in our work, but it's not going to replace 
all of the work. You're still going to need to be able to, you know, sell a product, sell a home, and that is through the, you know, that personal interaction. And this applies to many different types of jobs. So it's those human skills that are going to be becoming even more important. ABC's Rebecca Jarvis reporting. An outbreak of the measles in South Florida is putting school children and their parents on alert. So far, about 10 cases have been reported, centered mostly in Broward County, north of Miami. And some are blaming Florida's Surgeon General, Dr. Joseph Ladapo, for giving guidance that may have allowed the virus to spread. He wrote a letter to parents in one affected school, telling them to make their own decisions on whether to send their kids to class citing the high immunity rate in the community and the, quote, burden on families and the educational cost of healthy children missing school. Florida's former Surgeon General Scott Rivkes talked to ABC's Brad Milkey on our daily news podcast, Start Here, about how contagious and serious measles can be. Measles is a really serious virus. In fact, it's so contagious that one individual can actually spread it to 20 other individuals if they are not vaccinated. This virus lingers in the air for a while. So if somebody walks into a room or somebody was had measles over the previous two hours and they're not vaccinated, there's a 90% chance that they can actually get measles. Uh, measles is very serious. Uh, for children who get measles, about 20 to 50% of children will end up being uh, hospitalized. Wow. About three in a thousand individuals who have measles can actually pass away from it. People can get encephalitis from it, pneumonia. So measles is really an incredibly serious virus. And the, the vaccine of it all, because we hear about vaccines like with COVID, for instance, and, you know, Yes, they protect you, but it's not foolproof. You're saying the vaccination for measles is that, that this sounds different. Yeah, the vaccines for measles has been out since 1963. It is very effective and it is very safe. If you have one dose of vaccine, there's a 95% chance you'll be protected against measles. If you have wow. two doses, it brings it up to 99%. The other thing that's really important in this situation, Brad, is that if you are exposed to measles and you have not been vaccinated, if you get vaccinated within 72 hours, you will be largely protected from coming down with measles. So this is another important concept in terms of post-exposure vaccination. So what was your reaction when you heard this advice from Florida officials that you can send your unvaccinated kid back to school if you want? Yeah. So first of all, as I mentioned, we know what to do in terms of controlling measles and breaking this down. I break this down into four major pillars. First, educate, vaccinate, isolate, and then be fair about how we are doing uh, this response. In terms of isolation, this is why it's so important. So if an individual is exposed to somebody with measles, the incubation period can be seven to 14 days. And before you come down with symptoms over the four to five days beforehand, you can actually be contagious and spread the virus when you don't have measles. So that's why standard public health practice, including when I was Surgeon General of Florida, was to have people who are exposed to isolate. What could happen? What do you envision happening here? Yeah, well, first, let's look at it from the viewpoint of a parent. I actually think this is very unfair to parents of an unvaccinated child hmm. because it's now 
places the burden on them to make the decision. Do you send your child back to school or not? You know, of course, we're sensitive to the fact that individuals were out of school uh, during the pandemic, but we're in a different situation now. We can have remote learning. And again, where are parents going to get this information from? Um, also, for the other parents in the community, now they're going to be sitting there and saying to themselves, gosh, is the child who's sitting next to my child in school, who is vaccinated, uh, potentially contagious for measles? Vaccines are 99% effective, but there still are occasional individuals who have been vaccinated that may get measles. So again, you know, this policy really puts parents in a very uncomfortable position. And this Surgeon General has also defied health advice that goes beyond measles, right? He's recently called for halting the use of mRNA vaccines that are used to fight COVID. So I guess I'm wondering, is this just him? Like you've worked in the state. Does he have a different view towards vaccines than perhaps you did when you were in office? Or is this a sign that the anti-vax movement has spread beyond the fringes into government offices. You know, it's interesting. One of the things that did happen during the pandemic really was the rise of anti-vaccine sentiment. And how are we seeing this? We're seeing in pediatricians vaccinating fewer children than they had before. It's results in more children being vulnerable to uh, measles and other infectious diseases that didn't happen in the past. As far as COVID vaccine recommendations, you know, one of my concerns is this. If you look in Florida now, COVID right now is a disease. If you're vaccinated um, or get early antiviral treatment, uh, the mortality really should be very, very low. So we really have to ask ourselves, why is this happening? And is this a penalty of a lot of the anti-vaccine uh, conversation that's happening? And I guess I'm just asking, your former boss, effectively, Ron DeSantis, has he sort of brought, brought in people that are more likely to be anti-vax than, say, you were? Yeah, th there's been a big transition. You know, initially, uh, the governor was very much in favor of vaccination. We actually led the country in the spring of 2021 in individuals who are older than 65, the portion of individuals who have been uh, vaccinated. But there has been uh, less support for vaccines uh, uh, going forward after, after that time. Former Florida Surgeon General Scott Rivke speaking with ABC's Brad Milkey on Start Here. Coming up, at the close of Black History Month in February, the story of a landmarked mansion that once belonged to a groundbreaking black woman entrepreneur who went from problem solving to millions of dollars in profits. On Perspective, after this. You're listening to Perspective from ABC News. I'm Derek Dennis. Here's something that might make you feel old. Pokemon is celebrating a quarter century in America this year. From cartoons to trading cards and video games, Pokemon is everywhere. And as ABC's Mike Dubusky explains, collectors are trying to catch them all. The first Pokemon video games launched on the Nintendo Game Boy exclusively for the Japanese market in 1996. The object of Pokemon Red and Green was simple. Players wandered around a map, searching for, training, and eventually battling pocket monsters. Pokemon. The series was a hit. 
Soon, it expanded beyond Japan. It spawned sequels, books, movies, a popular anime, and a trading card game. Dan Flanagan works at The Complete Strategist, a hobby store in New York City. We sell everything from board games, trading card games, strategy games, war games, anything without a plug. That includes what's known in the biz as TCGs. So it's trading card games, any game that you don't get all the pieces right out of the box. Magic the Gathering is the original TCG, but there's also Yu-Gi-Oh!, Disney's Lorcana, Star Wars Unlimited, and of course, Pokemon. Flanagan says when the card game first arrived in the U.S. in 1999, it was especially popular among children. It's one of the first things a lot of kids have access to in terms of the brand is you can get your hands on a pack of Pokemon cards for like five, six bucks. It's pretty accessible. The Pokemon trading card game was popular, but not necessarily because kids were actually playing the game. Nobody I knew knew how to actually play the game. And as I see in the store, that's still kind of the way it is. It's mostly a collector's game. Yeah, that's the big thing you see with the kids is like they're ripping packs looking for these these rare variations like hyper rare and ultra rare, but like they don't really know how to play. Nat Turner works for a company called Collectors, which owns several authentication and grading services, including one for trading cards called PSA. He says regardless of whether they were playing the card game or not, all those kids caught up in the pokey mania of the early 2000s, they're grown up now. A lot of it's because the kids back in 1999 who were playing, fast forward 25 years, they've got disposable income, they're you know, they want to reconnect with their childhood. He says as Pokemon's 25th anniversary in the U.S. has approached, the market has grown significantly. From a quantity perspective, Pokemon is the biggest category at PSA. It's bigger than football. It's bigger than basketball. It's actually bigger than both of those combined. Turner says they see twice as many people submitting Pokemon cards than they do even baseball cards. And Flanagan says the pandemic lockdowns in 2020 also drove renewed interest in the brand. So like, let me clean out my closet. Oh my God, I found all my old Pokemon cards from 2002. Are any of these worth money? Spoiler alert, most of them aren't. Just because something's old doesn't mean it has value. To put it another way, chances are slim that the beat-up Pikachu card collecting dust in your closet is more valuable than a pristine Mickey Mantle card. When you look at value, it certainly is not as big as baseball because baseball's been, you know, collected since the late 1800s. Uh, you know, there's cards in baseball that are worth, you know, $50 million. Uh, in Pokemon, though, there are cards now that are well over a million dollars. Also, unlike other TCGs, how good a particular Pokemon card is in the context of the game doesn't really matter. Pokemon is kind of like the one, really, where the sales and everything isn't driven by gameplay. The most expensive Pokemon card ever sold at auction was a Pikachu Illustrator. YouTuber Logan Paul bought it in 2021 for over $5 million. But Turner says those big money collectibles are generally not the cards that saw action in the elementary school cafeterias of America in the early 2000s. The other big differentiation is the quality of the card, the condition. Uh, you know, the Charizard that you or I threw across our, our floor in our childhood room 
isn't worth as much because it's damaged and, and worn. So scarcity is one point in a card's favor. Condition is another. And if you are trying to catch them all, or at least catch the most valuable of them all, Flanagan says there's another thing you should know. Specific Pokemon will always have a higher draw, Charizard being number one, two, and three probably in that category. Charizard, I choose you! Reporting for Perspective, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. As February came to a close, so did Black History Month. But so much of Black history lives on with the legacy of civil rights leaders, political figures, and entrepreneurs. Madam C.J. Walker became a successful black businesswoman in the late 1800s out of necessity. She was losing her hair, so she created and then marketed her own homemade hair care products. Becoming so successful, she built what was then a state-of-the-art mansion in New York that still stands today. ABC's Michelle Charlesworth has the story. Madam C.J. Walker at the wheel. She drove her own expensive cars, plural, started her own hair care company, employed thousands of women, built her own mansion with every amenity. Listen to her great-great-granddaughter, oh, Alelia Bundles, describe her. She was orphaned at seven, married at 14, widowed at 20 with a daughter. And so Walker, born Sarah Breedlove, whose siblings and parents had been enslaved, put down roots in Indiana and then New York, making a fortune marketing her own hair ointment. Madam Walker's wonderful hair grower, it was 50 cents. People didn't bathe as often and they washed their hair even less. She was losing her hair because not just dandruff, but really bad scalp infection. But Walker's homemade salve made with sulfur and petroleum jelly healed her scalp and her hair grew back. A woman who lived more than half of her life without plumbing designed her home with multiple luxurious bathrooms. She had a custom sink in the pantry, refrigeration, even floor hookups for a central vacuum built into the house. Walker would have been even richer if she didn't pay her employees so well. One woman said, you have made it possible for a black woman to make more money in a day than she could in a month working in somebody's kitchen. And Madam C.J. Walker's story continues. Her great-great-granddaughter, Alelia Bundles, has written a book about her, and the New Voices Foundation is bringing her home, Villa Luaro, back. Out of the cruel crucible of racism and sexism, Walker built an empire. The original influencer who took her problem, solved it, sold it, and became an American hero who lived fearlessly, taking the wheel in her own miraculous life. ABC's Michelle Charlesworth. Before we go, a sign of the times. Macy's, the popular department store chain that operates the largest retail store in the world in New York City, says it's closing 150 other stores nationwide over the next three years. And it's no secret, Macy's has been struggling, laying off about 3.5% of its workforce, or about 2,300 workers last month. Its stock price dropping 75% since 2015. But the company's CEO says the store closures will mark a bold new chapter for Macy's, with a focus on improving its online shopping store and reinvigorating the brand overall. So what about other clothing retailers? The Wall Street Journal's Suzanne Kapner says the outlook is mixed. The companies that appeal to high-ranked consumers have been doing well. It's those in the middle that, like Macy's, that are struggling the most. Part of the plan for Macy's? 
focusing on its higher-end luxury stores, Bloomingdale's and Blue Mercury, which have outperformed Macy's, while also opening smaller, more upgraded, and reimagined Macy's stores for more intimate shopping experience. They feel that the mall has a place in the way consumers want to shop, but it just needs to be reimagined, re-enlivened, and upgraded a bit. After 166 years, Macy's is doing all it can to stay alive. From ABC News, this has been Perspective. Thanks for listening. This show is produced by Aaron Ferrer, Marwa Muwaki, and Joy Piazza. If you want to listen to any of our past shows, subscribe to the Perspective podcast. Give us a review. If you've got the time, tell us what you'd like to hear in the future and what you think. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also find Perspective and other ABC News shows at abcaudio.com slash podcasts. For ABC News, I'm Derek Dennis. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though... It's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.